It was almost real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast, episode 27. Hello and welcome to this episode of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. My name is Ken Zimmerman Jr. and this is the podcast dedicated to the history of professional wrestling between 1870 and 1920, although sometimes we stretch into the 1930s and for next, uh, the episode in two weeks, we're actually going to stretch into the 1980s. But in this episode, I'll discuss what I learned completing my book on the American wrestling career of Sorokichi Matsuda or Matsuda who was the first Japanese professional wrestler in America. But first, I wanted to give a couple updates on the upcoming schedule. So I'm recording this episode on Sunday, July 9th, to go out on Monday, July 10th. But I had actually recorded episode 28 a week ago, because my cousin Dan, who's been on the podcast a couple times, and I sit down... And we review the first available episode of Primetime Wrestling that's available on the network. And I wanted to go back and just discuss a little bit about how we became fans and how we became fans of WWF, which became WWE. Because initially, I did not like the WWF wrestling at all. I considered it comic book wrestling because I had grown up on St. Louis wrestling that was promoted by Sam Muchnick. Uh, my sister Vicky, who's my older sister by 15 years, used to take me to the wrestling matches every three to four weeks. It was always on a Friday night uh, at Keel Auditorium almost all the time, except for the one or two big cards a year that would be at the Checker Dome, which was later the arena. Back to being the, uh, no, it was the arena, then the Checker Dome, then the arena. But that was the wrestling I grew up on. That was St. Louis was an NWA town. Sam Muchnick had been the NWA president for most of its history. And that was the kind of professional wrestling that I enjoyed. But in the mid-80s, we got cable around 1986. And I did actually give WWF a chance. And only because of the primetime wrestling show. And more uh, specifically... For the commentary of Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby the Brain Heenan. But we're going to talk about that in the next episode, which will be released on July 24th. And then starting in August, I believe I will have both uh, Dan and my son Caleb as regular guests back on the show. And we'll go back to the format we had been using, which was an update either on the writing projects or wrestling in general. The main content, which will be on some historical topic I'm either researching or have researched. And then we will do a review. And I like having Caleb for those reviews because he is not a traditional... Uh, well, he's not a professional wrestling fan of any uh, type. He's actually just started watching some uh, matches because he was doing the podcast with me. Uh, he didn't watch wrestling growing up. He watched uh, MMA... And he's a martial artist himself. He started 
Taekwondo when he was five, and he started Judo when he was six. So he brings the eyes of primarily a martial artist, not a professional wrestling fan, to the podcast. So I think it gives a little different perspective. And uh, one of the other things that I wanted to cover in the update before we get into the main content, I was watching, or watching, I was listening to an episode of Jim Cornette's Drive-Thru. This is the show where Brian will ask Jim Cornette questions about pro wrestling history. And it's my favorite of the the two podcasts uh, because there are historians that know more about particular eras of professional wrestling, but I don't think anyone in totality, the totality of the profession in the United States knows it as well as Jim Cornette, and give Brian Last his due, uh, he's an excellent historian as well. So I think they have the best wrestling history podcasts, and the drive through is my particular favorite. But Jim Cornette pointed something out, and I understood it, but I don't know why it just seems so much more profound. So when I was a kid, 11, 12, 13, 14, going to the wrestling matches with my sister Vicky, and we were watching a match... If the match was terrible, but my favorite won, I was deliriously happy. So if Ted DiBiase beat Ken Patera for the Missouri title, I wouldn't have cared what the match was like. Ted DiBiase won. And the same thing when David Von Erich was wrestling Harley Race. Harley Race won most of those matches. So I went home disappointed no matter how great those matches were. Today... You don't watch professional wrestling the same way. Today, we're watching it for great matches. And I realized that the other day, because I always tell my son, Caleb, I can't recreate professional wrestling for him the way it was in 1978 or 79 when I became a fan, because there was only one wrestling show. It was your local wrestling show. There was no cable. There was no national wrestling at the time. But in all reality, I can't recreate that either because we knew something was going on. We knew what we were watching wasn't completely legitimate. But you could suspend your belief enough that you could enjoy it as a competition or a contest, even though you knew probably wasn't. Today, all of that's gone. With all the podcasts and all the books and everything that's been done, everybody knows how everything's done. So no one watches anymore. Well, I can't say that completely because I do want certain people to win. But in the end, if someone doesn't win, it's not the end of the world because you just knew that whoever the promoter wanted to go over is who's going to go over. Now you watch a pay-per-view to see a great wrestling match. And that is a huge difference. So I can't even recreate pro wrestling for myself the way it used to be, much less recreate it for my son who was never a fan. So I just wanted to point that out because for some reason it just really stuck with me this time. It's not even the way it was for us, much less anybody else. So I wanted to jump into the main content of the show. And what I wanted to talk about is what I learned with the uh, latest book project that I actually just completed the manuscript for today. It still has to go through the editing process. So I, I think we're still looking at late July, late August, somewhere between late July and late August for a publication date. But I finished uh, the book I've been working on, 
on the first Japanese professional wrestler in the United States, whose name was actually Kojiro Torikichi Matsuda. Torikichi was his sumo name. But that was turned around in the newspapers of the day. The newspapers in the 19th century and tw early 20th century are famous for not having names spelled correctly and everything. And I don't know if it was just they misspelled his name the first few times and it stuck, or if he just went with it because that's what people were saying. But his name in the United States was Sorokichi Matsada. So if you would do a newspaper search and you would put in Sorokichi Matsuda, which is what historians have corrected it to, you're not going to get any hits. You'd have to put it in as Sorokichi Matsuda. But for the book, I actually call him Sorokichi Matsuda throughout the book, since that's how most historians refer to him. If you're going to find him online, that's how you'll most likely search him, unless you're going for the original sources. And I don't know where Korea came in, unless they were trying to uh, capture his actual first name of Kojiro. But um, at some point in time, it, he became Sorokichi K. Matsada. So when I started researching the book, I already knew a bit about Matsuda because I had already researched some of his career earlier. And particularly, I discovered him initially when I was writing the book on Evan Strangler Lewis. So, Matsuda had two very famous matches with Lewis in Chicago in January and February of 1886. And these matches were infamous because Lewis tried basically to, to kill him. And I never knew what caused him to get so angry where he tried to strangle him to death in the first match and then tried to break his ankle in the second match. But I did discover that while researching the book this time. When I did the book on Lewis, that was 2015. A lot of the newspaper archives were not as good as they are today. And today I actually found a couple of articles from Chicago, which helped clear up the mystery of what Matsuda did to make Lewis so mad. But you didn't make Lewis mad. That was a very dangerous thing to do. But those matches made Matsuda both a national star and a favorite, fan favorite. And I thought going into this, my first assumption that was blown during the research was that after those two matches, they never met again because I never found where they wrestled again when I was researching Lewis. But the newspaper and the online archives in particular are much better now. So I found that they actually did wrestle one more time in 1888. Um, this match was a contest, but Lewis didn't try to kill him this time. Uh, he kind of took it easy on him. But So th that was the first assumption that I had gone in, or the first thing I thought I knew. They never wrestled again. In actuality, they did wrestle again. The second thing that I had thought was I had thought, because of the time frame and because of why he came to America, and I guess I buried the lead, so, Matsuda was a sumo wrestler in Japan in his late teens, early 20s. But it was pretty obvious early on that he was not going to become one of the great sumo wrestlers of all time. He was with a very good stable in Japan, but he just didn't have the skill level, the aptitude, maybe the size, 
because he was super strong, but he was small. He was five foot five, and he weighed anywhere between 155 to 180 pounds, depending on what shape he was in, how much he'd been lifting, etc. So he came to the United States in 1884 to learn American professional wrestling, which he had hoped to export back to Japan. And he was going to be the promoter of professional wrestling in Japan. That doesn't work out for uh, several reasons. One, he marries an American wife. Two, and most importantly, he catches tuberculosis called consumption at the time. And that's a death sentence at that time. But <clears throat> when he came here, I thought Matsuda primarily wrestled contests. Well, while Matsuda did wrestle mostly contests early in his career, he primarily worked matches in the last three to four years of his career. So most of his later matches, and this was even before he got sick with tuberculosis, you can understand he would be working the matches more after catching tuberculosis because he's going to have limited wind and strength. But he was actually working the matches long before he uh, got tuberculosis. So that was a second thing that I thought I knew or an assumption that I had going in that kind of got blown out of the water. Third, based on the research that I had done around the time I was researching Lewis's book, I knew Matsuda had married an American wife, Ella Lodge, but I was under the impression that that marriage had only lasted about three months because they had two very high-profile public uh, disputes in New York. The second one, she had the sheriff arrest him for abuse. And it was always questionable whether he was ever abusive at all because his wife was arrested multiple times for assault over the years. But the original article said after the sheriff had sworn out the warrant, but then it had been thrown out by the prosecutor, that they had split up for good. Actually, they were together and married and continued to have flare-ups. One, Matsuda was uh, one known to have affairs, so he always had female admirers, and he wasn't shy about letting them uh, heap attention on him, which caused problems in the marriage. Uh, there was money issues that caused problems in the marriage, and his wife was jealous and would go get into conflicts with these women that he was spending time with. So all of this would make it into the papers uh, repeatedly. But the marriage did actually last until his death. They were still married and she was still living in New York at the time of his death. Although she didn't pay for any of his funeral arrangements, the Japanese community in New York did. And their relationship was tumultuous all the way up to the end. And I think the biggest surprise I had, because when at the point in time in his career that Matsuda caught tuberculosis, I started wondering if I had made a mistake looking at that as a book project. Maybe I should have looked at it as a booklet or a portion of a book on 19th century pro wrestlers. Because at the point he catches tuberculosis, I'm thinking, boy, he hasn't wrestled a whole lot. And I'm twelve to 13,000 words into the project. Well, actually, he wrestled as much, if not more, 
during those next two years. And he, he had his last match on May 13th, 1891 against Martin Farmer Burns. And that match occurred four months before he died. And the last month or two of his life, he barely had enough strength to walk from the hotel across the street to the social club that he liked to frequent. So it's it's absolutely amazing how long his wrestling career would his wrestling career would go on for basically another eighteen months, eighteen to twenty months, and he was still doing the strength exhibitions. So as I said, he was extremely powerful even though he was small, and that filters into what was my biggest surprise about doing the book. But first, I wanted to cover my biggest disappointment. So as I said, there are a lot more sources available now than there used to be. But unfortunately, I have not been able to find any coverage of the Martin Farmer Burns Sorokichi Matsuda match on May 13, 1891. I know it occurred. They mentioned it in the papers afterwards with no, you know, that they wrestled that Burns won. But there are no real descriptions. Uh, the match was short, just four minutes or something like that. But there's no description that I can really use to talk about what happened in that match. So that, that was a huge disappointment. Maybe in a couple years that'll be rectified. But right now I couldn't find any first-hand accounts of this match which occurred in Rochester, New York. So that was my biggest disappointment with the project. I really would have liked to have a lot more in-depth coverage of his final match. But he was deathly ill at the time. A week later, he would be in the hospital, and he would never wrestle or perform any strongman stunts again after that. And then what I found most surprising was that Matsuda could have actually been a professional strongman and would have been the strongest man in the United States at the time if there was any money in the strongman competition. So there were several wrestlers and professional strongmen in the U.S., but none of them did that full-time. Captain uh, Daly, who was a frequent opponent of Matsuda, would take part in these competitions. And then there were strongmen from Europe coming to take part in these competitions, and a lot of them all centered around the Police Gazette, which was a, a magazine that was owned and operated by Richard K. Fox, who was the owner and editor. And Richard K. Fox used a lot of his money to support professional boxing and professional wrestling in the 19th and 20th centuries. Fox was a big proponent for the legalization of professional boxing, and it probably would not have been legalized without his support. And he was also a backer of professional wrestling, although he did not want to be involved with worked matches. So when you worked with Fox, you had to be very careful if you were working matches to hide that fact from him. Because he rightly believed that if people knew that boxing matches were fixed or professional wrestling matches were fixed, that the fans would lose faith and not come out anymore. And it would kill his campaign to have them legalized by the state governments. So Fox would back Matsuda later in his career, but he had a number of things. He had an anvil that weighed like 278 pounds. He had a set of Indian clubs, and he had a couple of other th things at his office 
the professional strongmen and these wrestlers would have a competition lifting. Matsuda, early on, 84, 85, when he's 24, 25 years old. Oh, that was one of the other things I discovered. There has not ever been a definitive birth date for him, but if we can believe the Vancouver newspapers he talked to in 1889, he was 29 on September 11th, uh, 1889, which would have made his birth date September 11th, 1860 in Japan. So that's what I'm going with is his birth date. So when he was 24, 25 years old, he takes part in a number of these lifting competitions with both the wrestlers like Captain Daly and these professional strongmen, and, and Matsuda wins them all. He wins, you know, $50 here, $50 there. And he is the lifting champion with all of these different uh, things, the anvil, the Indian clubs. And when he gets tuberculosis and gets sick, he still is able to go out and give demonstrations, and people can't beat him at these competitions when he is weakened from tuberculosis. And from a person who was five foot five, and in his best weight when he was lifting, he was about 165 to 170. And this is way before steroids and any other performance enhancing drugs. It is absolutely amazing that someone at that size could lift the things that he lifted and to win the competitions he did. It's just a shame he couldn't make his living as a professional strongman because if he could, he might not have been touring as much. Consumption a lot of times was something that people contracted, traveling a lot, um, particularly in the 19th century. Uh, a lot of people in the West got consumption. And then, um, since there was no, since the strongman competition, oh, that was one thing I wanted to say too, Muldoon never challenged him to any lifting challenges and did not want to take part in any lifting challenges with Matsuda. So that should tell you a lot about how strong that he was. But again, he had to wrestle to earn a living at the time. You know, you'd make 50 bucks in a competition, but you'd make several hundred to several thousand between gate receipts and the bets you could generate on wrestling at the time. So if you find any of that interesting, you can look for the book on Amazon in July or August. It should be in the bookstores and libraries later in the year. On Amazon, it will be available in Kindle, paperback, and hardcover. I've had a couple people ask me about audiobook. I do want to get uh, at least the combat sports books on audiobook at some point. But right now, I've got so much uh, demands on my time, I'm probably not even going to look at that until next year or the year after. But yes, I definitely am looking at some point to get those books available in audio. And so my review, Danny and I were originally going to do this, but I decided I could just do this on my own. And that is, while we were down there and we recorded the other podcast, we watched the Usos versus Roman Reigns and Solo Sokoa match at Money in the Bank. And I still believe that the Bloodline storyline remains the most compelling thing in what has evolved from professional wrestling in the 1980s and 1990s. I'm not willing to call it sports entertainment because I think that's Vince's way of not admitting that he's a professional wrestling promoter. But it is not traditional professional wrestling either because we all know it's a big work and people are watching for different reasons. So for that, I will say I thought it was both a good match and it was a good 
it's not a conclusion to the storyline because the storyline is still going but it was a good conclusion to the next chapter in this storyline and I have always felt from the very first time that I saw them working this and when the bloodline became big and it expanded to take in Sami Zayn that Roman Reigns intent was always to have his streak ended by Jay Russo who it's uh, Jay Russo Jay Uso Lord forgive me um we don't want to bring up Vince Russo uh, on the podcast but how I believe it was always uh Roman Reigns desire to to end his streak to Jay Uso who he's very close with and I always had concerns that let's face it uh, Vince is not the Vince of old, and I thought he would get in it and mess it up. But so far, it looks like that, and I don't know if it's because he tends to give his stars more leeway, so maybe he's giving Roman more leeway in this storyline. I'm sure Roman is working with Paul Heyman and Jay and Jimmy, and they're bringing Solo along in this storyline. But it is the most compelling thing they've done in a long time. And outside of a few things that I thought were kind of taking it down the wrong road, they got it back in the end, and it's still the most interesting thing uh, on a pro wrestling show today. Even if it's not traditional pro wrestling, it's still interesting and compelling. And then I would... uh, We watched a couple others I did enjoy... The uh, Cody Rhodes-Dominic Mysterio match. I think Dominic is a great heel. Everybody wants to see him get shut up. And I will have to say that um, I never saw Cody Rhodes as the person to end Roman Reigns' streak. I know a lot of fans see him a lot differently, but he was a mid-card guy in WWE before He leaves the company and goes to AEW and helps them form the company. But I never saw him achieve superstar status there either. And I just did not see him as the person to dethrone Roman Reigns. Although they gave him a great push. And those matches with Seth Rollins really helped to get him over. But I I still, I just have to be honest, I didn't see him as the person to be the one to end Roman's streak. But I really enjoyed his match with... Dominic, which he was obviously leading. So I'm not down on him. I'm not saying he's bad. I just did not see him as the person to, quite frankly, I didn't see him as the person to beat Brock either, but he did, and he did it uh, in a believable way. So I'm not saying the guy's terrible. I just didn't see him in that role. And then finally, uh, the person who I think may be the best wrestler in the world right now is Seth Rollins and the match with him and Finn Balor I really enjoyed I wish they wouldn't have done all that stuff at the end with uh, Damian Priest but you know it's the WWE it's probably we probably should be happy that it wasn't worse than it was so with that that's it for this episode of it was almost real the pro wrestling history podcast next episode of course I've already said I'll be discussing an episode of Primetime Wrestling with my cousin Dan. It's the first episode available on the network. 
And then KenzermanJr.com is the place to check out the show notes for today's episode. You can view the show notes for this episode at KenzermanJr.com, episode 27. You can also see what I'm working on currently in a list of books I have written if you are interested in digging deeper into this era of professional wrestling. Thank you for listening today. Bye-bye, everybody.